Thank you for listening to In Good Faith, the Central Reformed Church Sermon Podcast. This episode's sermon is titled, He Ascended into Heaven, and is based on Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. It was delivered on Sunday, May 29th, 2022, by Pastor Stephen D. Pierce. you to turn your pew Bibles to page 861, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. The word of the Lord. Donald Strobe, in one of his sermons titled Making Sense of the Ascension, tells a humorous story about a moment in a Roman Catholic parochial school where Sister Marie was teaching the biblical story of the Ascension to elementary school children. Fascinated by the story, one of the boys in the class asked Sister Marie, how fast was Jesus traveling when he ascended into the heavens? Startled at first, Sister Marie caught her breath and replied, well, let's see, he was speaking to them, so we know he wasn't traveling faster than the speed of sound. So the boy, being more of the the space age, did some calculations, and they quickly responded, well, if that's the case, he isn't there yet. I love that story. Because it points out the difficulty many of us have with the story of the ascension. I mean, it's one thing to try to tell somebody that a man was raised from the grave. Now, think about trying to explain to folks that that same man who received a new body ascended into the heavenly places. The story of the ascension borders on the ridiculous. Let's be honest about it. Can you imagine trying to explain this story to an astronomer? Or imagine trying to explain the ascension to the late Carl Sagan. Something I would have enjoyed having at least a conversation with him about. 
it would be tough, but let's not forget that as Christians, faith plays a role in science. Let's also not forget that the ascension of Jesus is a mystery to be contemplated, not a problem to be solved. I'm thinking of the late John Polkinghorn, physicist, theologian, an Anglican priest who once said, I have a binocular view of the world with one eye looking through the lens of faith and another eye looking through the lens of science. And neither view is complete without the other. So the problem of Jesus' ascension was heightened in the 16th century when the discoveries of Copernicus concerning the movement of the heavenly bodies overthrew the then commonly accepted Ptolemaic theories of the universe. Copernicus taught that the earth was neither flat nor the center of the universe, but instead spherical in shape and moved in its own axis around the sun. Such a view of the universe, which I think most of us take for granted today, was absolutely devastating for people who had a different worldview in 1543. If you think about it, the earth does look flat, doesn't it? And if you didn't know any better, you would just assume that the sun revolves around the earth. But Copernicus turned that all upside down and he was condemned by scientists, he was condemned by theologians, and then ordinary people cried out, if this new astronomy is true, people on the other side of the earth must be walking on their heads and their feet in the air. Fast forward 75 years later, Galileo would pick up on Copernicus's theories and use the telescope. And then there were people who said, that telescope is an instrument of Satan created to cause confusion among the people. Even the Pope summoned Galileo and ordered him to recant his radical notion that the earth moved around the sun. And realizing the power of the church and his predicament, he backed off. But it wasn't until 1822 that the Pope officially gave the earth permission to revolve around the sun. As science advanced over the years, the mystery and wonder of the ascension of Jesus grew. But what is it? I mean, if you were on that elevator and someone said, hey, what's the ascension all about? What would you say? How would you language it? As the story goes, on the 40th day after Easter, Jesus went up the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he ascended into heaven before their eyes. That was the Acts 1 reading. And in our passage from Luke, the very end of his gospel, we read, while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. Well, to the casual reader or to someone who's an atheist or perhaps someone who's struggling with, with doubts or not a follower of Christ, this story makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It doesn't. 
Why in the world would this tale of Jesus and his resurrection body being lifted bodily from earth into heaven, recorded only by Luke, end up forming such a central part of the gospel story, essential part of the creeds of the church? After all, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Apostles' Creed all contain the line, he ascended into heaven. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We say that creed regularly, don't we? And then we read this in Acts. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then this, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the men of Galilee. Why do you stand here looking into the sky the same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you've seen him go into heaven. It's a strange story. How do you explain it? How do you wrap your faith around such an idea that Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, it's a strange story, but I, I do think as Christians it does provide quite a bit of comfort for us to say to someone that we believe that the Son of the living God, the one who came from heaven, took on flesh and blood, having died for us, takes the essential part of our nature back with him into heaven where he, and by virtue of implication, we are made holy. That's the polished theological response. But where is that exactly? Where is sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty? We don't know. It's a mystery to be contemplated, not a problem to be solved. Some theologians believe that the truth of that language is not spatial, but spiritual. It's the language of sacred myth or of sacred mystery. Truth that's understood through the language of metaphor and symbol. We have to commend the biblical writers for their poetic imagination. In the Bible, when we read the word up, it means to... Be closer to God. Up. Up denotes majesty. It denotes dominion. It denotes power, glory. We use metaphorical language all the time without even thinking about it. Some of you today will go to Lake Michigan and you will say, the sun is setting. But when you think about what you're saying, you come to your senses and realize there's no such thing as the sun rising or setting. 
If someone says to you, I'm feeling down, you know exactly what they mean. Or as Donald Strobe puts it, <laughs> great problems surface when we take metaphorical language literally. In their efforts to affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ, the biblical writers were saying something about Christology, not cosmology. Okay? They wanted everyone to know that the Lord Jesus is Lord of the entire universe. That while the world is full of pain and suffering and in desperate need of being redeemed, the world does in fact have a redeemer. The world has a redeemer because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Somehow. The mystery, the truth of this gave those first disciples great confidence that God had big plans for humanity. Why else would they go back to Jerusalem with great joy? Why else would they spend so much time in the temple blessing God? They were celebrating Jesus the Christ at the right hand of the Father and him sharing completely in the divine nature. Jesus is there. <laughs> Just fun to say it. Jesus is there. He's there with the saints to intercede for us, to care for us until he returns again in the manner he left his disciples upon the clouds. Because of his ascension, we can confidently say that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. Because of this part of the gospel story, we can say that unto Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. Because of this part of the story, we're holding the tension of the Trinitarian mystery that God is both three and one. But I also think this gospel comforts us to know that there is one in heaven who, knowing firsthand the experience of temptation and suffering, prays for us and perfects our prayers. Jesus is there and he's praying for you. He's perfecting your prayers. And he's holding you in his heart. That we too will experience our own bodily resurrections and in the meantime are invited, think about this, we're invited to set our minds, our hearts and minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God to quote Paul in Colossians chapter 3. That all of this serves as prelude to Pentecost where the power of the risen Christ came upon all believers through the Holy Spirit. Wow. He descended into hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He ascended 
into heaven. I would argue we need this gospel now more than ever. We're, we're still reeling in shock after learning 19 children and two adults were killed at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And, and, and these deadly shootings took place in a community where it was supposed to be a safe haven for all, right? And we think of our own communities. And at the same time, I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to process the horrific situation that went down in Buffalo, where some lunatic decided to load up ammunition and go into a grocery store and shoot, target, shoot, kill 10 black people. It was intentional. What are we doing? What has happened to us? God forbid such violence continue in this country. God forbid it continue to go on. Each of those people who were murdered in cold blood, these children, were image bearers of the Almighty. Cannot deny that. And in the midst of our our pain and suffering, we sometimes think, that God is absent, that God's playing hooky, as if God had turned God's back on us. The psalmist had something to say about that when he wrote, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and and saves the crushed in spirit. C.S. Lewis said after his wife died that he could hear the door closing and the lock being double-bolted. Some of you have experienced that. And there are plenty of other psalms that we read where the poet cries out, Where are you, God? What the heck's going on here? What's the meaning of this? How long will you keep us waiting? How long will you hold back from helping us? I know it feels like that for so many of us today especially for those precious people in Uvalde, Texas, and in Buffalo, New York, and in many other places in the world. You think of Ukraine and Yemen and Ethiopia and and countless other countries. Many years ago, Steve Holloway went through a really dark time in, in ministry. In his church, he was attempting to defend the rights of women. This was about 22 years ago. And because of the toxic political rhetoric and in-house fighting, he decided the best thing he could do was to resign after 13 years of faithful ministry in this particular church. To say his heart was crushed would be an understatement. What he needed most wasn't an explanation or a new job. At that time, he needed to sense God was not forsaking him, that even though he felt defeated and destroyed and exhausted, God was somehow still there, still present. And so he wrote a poem which includes a haunting line. He he writes, As a guest memorizes the layout of a room before turning out the light, 
I am learning to find you in the dark. He had to learn again to trust not in his abilities or in his stellar resume, but in the one who ascended long ago. And he ends this beautiful poem with these words. Like a long-married couple, we travel sometimes without speech. I no longer ask at every junction if you know the way. The history of our journeying means more than what the headlights show. Speak to me, Lord, or do not speak. Show me the path you choose, or simply take me there. Only let me trust in you. The good news for us today is that Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, did not simply fade away like a gust of wind on a cool summer evening. Because he's glorified, because he is lifted up, having ascended into heaven, to that place, he is able to be with us now, right here. He's able to be with all who suffer and are in search of meaning, who are trying their hardest right now not to fall apart, as we talked about last week. So we need not look up and and wonder where he is, for by his going, he comes to us. He comes to us. He comes to us and will protect us and bring us safe to his side when our work and when our witness is done. Believe this gospel. Believe it. And in your believing, know God's peace. Let us pray. O God of earth and sky, as Jesus came among us in Bethlehem to raise us up to heaven, so today we recall his departing from us at Jerusalem to be in all places. Though he is hidden from our sight, enable us to abide in him, to experience his joy and peace and friendship by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit until his mercy and grace fill your whole creation. We boldly pray in his name and all God's people say, Amen. New to Central? Since 1840, we have been connecting people to God and to one another through scripture, sacrament, song, and service. 
We are located on the corner of College Avenue and Fulton Street in the Heritage Hill neighborhood of Grand Rapids, Michigan. We hope you will give us the opportunity to meet you in person soon. To learn more about our mission, ministries, and ways you can grow and serve, please visit our website, centralreformedchurch.org.